Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Every Monday night here on State of the Bay, we are live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. It's back to school time, and tonight we're starting a mini-series on what to expect as students head back to school. We'll focus on San Francisco this week and Oakland next Monday. Tonight, we'll also learn about the benefits of awe walks and the many ways to enjoy hiking in the Bay Area. And later in the show, you'll hear my interview with local author Erin Carlson about her book on the making of the classic film, A League of Their Own. But first, this news. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Later on in this hour, we're going to be talking about how easy and beneficial it is to get outside in the Bay Area by taking walks and hikes. And we'll also hear my interview with local author Erin Carlson about her book on the making of the classic film, A League of Their Own. But first, it's back to school time in San Francisco. Students enrolled in our city's public schools will head back to class this Wednesday. And it's been a tough few years for the San Francisco Unified School District. On the heels of the disruption caused by the pandemic, the district had to contend with a contentious recall of three of its school board members and publicity over bugs in a new payroll system that left many teachers unpaid. And this was all in the midst of declining enrollment and a persistent struggle to recruit enough credentialed teachers. So are these troubles a thing of the past as this new school year begins? Well, here tonight to answer that question and more, we are very pleased to welcome back Jill Tucker, education reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. So welcome back to State of the Bay, Jill. Thank you, Ethan. So Jill, as I mentioned, students are getting ready to go back to school on Wednesday. Teachers have already returned, but just in this past June, a report by a civil grand jury found that nearly one fourth of teachers in the San Francisco Unified School District were not fully credentialed. And the district's teacher shortage is worse than that of California and the Bay Area as a whole. So my first question to you is, can parents be confident that their kids are going to have a qualified teacher in the classroom starting on Wednesday? Well, yes and no. (laughs) Um, I think to, to a degree, there will not be a permanent teacher in many classrooms Uh, I checked in with the district today, and they still have about 100 teacher vacancies. That's down from last Friday, so they're they're continuing to fill about 82% of the vacancies have been filled. And so that means that there won't be a permanent teacher in their classroom. So I think there's a little bit of confusion about what it means to have a qualified teacher. All all the teachers that will be in the classrooms, whether they're a substitute or whether they'll be a, a district official that's credentialed, They'll all be there on a credential of some kind, Um, but they may not be there on the, uh, you know, maybe it's a history class and it'll be a teacher with an English credential. Um, So they'll have an emergency type credential to be able to teach that or they'll be a a, a long term substitute. Um, So but they but a lot of kids, you know, 100 or 100 uh, classrooms uh, may not have a permanent teacher credentialed specifically for what they are going to teach. And that's still an issue, right? It's, you know, you want your child to walk into the classroom, whether they're in kindergarten or high school or whatever, and walk in and have it be the teacher that's going to be there for the year, the teacher that's going to learn their name and is going to understand what their needs are. And, you know, for a lot of kids, uh, thousands perhaps, uh, depending on how many teachers uh, are, uh, they still are trying to hire, um, they're not going to walk into that first day with that, with that, you know, teacher that they're going to have the rest of the year. 
So not a full disaster, but definitely not completely reassuring to uh, the parents, as, as you just described. And I'm wondering if this is an ongoing problem or has this gotten worse since the payroll issue that I mentioned last year when the district's rollout of a new payroll system went really terribly wrong and scores of teachers ended up getting shortchanged on their paychecks or left without health benefits. I know those problems continued into this year. So I'm wondering if this is a, a bit of a fallout from that payroll issue and also wondering where things stand now with the payroll situation. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. It's kind of hard to say um, the the positions that they had, the number of positions and vacancies for teachers that they had to fill this year has kind of returned to pre-pandemic levels. Um, it dropped down during the pandemic to, to lower numbers of teachers leaving and the positions that they had to fill. And now it's kind of gone back to what the pre-pandemic was. So it's a little unclear how much the payroll situation has affected that or whether they would have had fewer positions had they um, not uh, you know, had this payroll fiasco. But the reality is the teacher shortage is very widespread. And in talking to a lot of districts, especially urban districts in, in areas with low-income kids and where there are, are more issues um, that teachers have to face, there are vacancies everywhere. There is a massive teacher shortage, shortage statewide and across the country. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that, um, but it, it, it is a problem in many districts, not just San Francisco. Um, and yet at the same time, the payroll debacle was horrific. And, you know, I still am hearing fallout from that of people still not made whole. Um, there are still issues. It's definitely getting better. Um, but, you know, as a school year starts with new people onboarding, we'll see how it goes. Uh, we'll be keeping tabs. They're definitely not, you know, all the way there yet. Well, another issue that's popped up is that in, in March, a group of parents sued the district over the city's math policy, which requires students to take Algebra 1 in the ninth grade. Can you tell us a little bit about why the parents think the district's policy is misguided and, and where things now stand with that lawsuit? Yeah, there, there's definitely the math wars, uh, you know, are ongoing across the country. Um, in San Francisco, they really have flared up um, with the policy to uh, make algebra generally an, a, a high school subject for ninth grade. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of parents uh, have been opposed to that policy, saying it restricts kids that are ready for higher math. It, it prevents them from reaching calculus or it makes it a lot harder for them to reach calculus in high school if they don't if they don't have the opportunity to take uh, algebra one in eighth grade. Um, but the reality is, even though the, the lawsuit is ongoing, um, the district is really taking a look at this, look at this issue and have said this is, you know, it's not going to be immediate. They're not going to make any big changes right away. They're going to have a lot of community conversations. But I would expect um, some resolution in the math uh, Algebra 1 issue for San Francisco in the months ahead. Um, you know, whether they decide to keep it in the eighth grade or whether they decide to keep it in the ninth grade or bring it back into the eighth grade for kids somehow, um, I think we're going to have a lot of conversations about that uh, in the community, a lot of conversations at the school board, and ultimately a vote on that issue. And what was the motivation for them deciding to delay algebra? Was this an issue, uh, an effort to try to make the curriculum more equitable for students of different demographics? Yeah, even exactly. They, you know, they had uh, look, you know, looking at the idea of of tracking kids and what the impact of tracking is on on all kids. And uh, looking at how students did, um, you know, if they were trying to rush through um, algebra in, the, in middle school, what the impact is long term, 
And, and in general, the, the goal was to try to get more students of color, low-income students into advanced math courses in, in a later in high school. And ultimately it didn't do that. Um, it, it, I think there were some benefits otherwise in, in some places in terms of more students um, in Algebra 2 and, and, and completing uh, some of these courses, but it wasn't doing what the school board wanted. So they are definitely rethinking it. And then a big elephant in the room, really, when it comes to education in San Francisco is declining enrollment and data from earlier this year shows that with San Francisco Unified School District Public Schools, it's continuing to decline, although there has been a slowdown uh, in the exodus recently. Now, how has or will the loss of students impact the education that the district is able to provide? Is there the possibility that we're going to see some closing of schools or, or merging? Yeah, you know, maybe. And I think this is going to be a really hot topic this upcoming school year. Um, declining enrollment is happening all across California, across the country. Uh, there's a, a declining birth rate. There's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, but San Francisco has seen a lot of, of uh, loss of students. Uh, the pandemic certainly didn't help that. And, and so they really, every kid that is not in the school district anymore is a loss of state funding. And it's a, it's a lot of money in state funding. And so it means they have to figure out how to balance their budget with that, with lower levels of funding, even though they have, um, you know, they still have to keep the lights on in all the schools. They still have to, you know, if you're only losing two students on average per classroom, for example, or, or you know, a handful in each school, you can't shut down that school, you know, so you still have to provide, and you can't really make a lot of cuts. You still have to provide the same level of services. So they're really, it's, it's, it's getting difficult for the district to look ahead and try to figure out how they're going to balance the budget with fewer kids. And that is going to lead to discussions about how to, what they call right size the district. If you have too many schools that are partially empty, it's expensive. So we will be talking about that. Um, as the year goes on, the superintendent and the district um, have plans to really roll out community discussions about what, options there are. They sort of say closure sort of at the bottom of everything that's on the table, but it's on the table. So, um, you know, that's very worrisome to families. Um, So that's a a super hot topic. Nobody wants to see their school closed. But at the same time, you can't just keep going with declining enrollment and not taking action. Absolutely. Well, you just referenced the new superintendent, Matt Wayne, who took over last July. Has he proven to be an effective leader in the face of these problems? What is he saying about his priorities for the coming year? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's hard to say. And obviously, it depends on who you talk to. But but Matt Wayne is definitely the kind of superintendent that is what he, what he calls himself a, a listener. And he is not the type to make recommendations or take big steps without consulting the community, without doing a lot of listening and working with the school board on what the options are. Um, so he's a process guy. And, I, you know, in a way that means decisions are down the road rather than right now. Um, but it is a long process that makes sure that everybody has a chance to be involved before any what he calls big decisions are made. Mm-hmm. They aren't going to knee-jerk any decisions. They're not going to close schools without people having a long time to talk about it, give feedback, and and expect that decision. Um, so, you know, he, he's that kind of superintendent, but it also means that, you know, there's a long runway 
for a lot of these really important decisions that the district is going to have to make. And I referenced that the three school board members were recalled last year. How have things turned out now on the on the board? Have they settled down a bit? Yeah, I would say definitely. I mean, we don't have any recall election coming up, so there's a win, right? And um, but you know, they've been through a lot of training. Uh, that was something that when uh, the new ones were appointed and they, you know, new to leadership took over, they started doing a massive amount of governance training to figure out, you know, a better way to have conversations or disagreements without, you know, having sort of the chaos and 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 um, all of the arguments and and uh, scandals and and all of those types of things that that the district went through. Um, so, you know, theoretically, that training is kicking in and we'll see much more of a smooth process rather than the bickering and, and all of that type of things. Um, so we'll see. Um, so far, it's it's a lot more boring, which is what everybody wants um, from a school board. Uh, so we'll see. And what about teacher housing? It does, does seem like a bright spot that the district is now getting some housing built specifically for teachers. Can you just talk briefly about that? We just have about a minute left, but wondering. Yeah, they broke ground on that. So uh, in the coming years, we'll have some um, housing specific for teachers. A lot of districts across the state are doing that. Um, So, you know, it it should fill up rather quickly. Um, So it's not going to be this, you know, constant, you know, availability for teachers, but just the idea of having an apartment for teachers is a first step. I will say, though, that we also have, a teacher contract and there were threats of a strike in the spring. So, uh, you know, teacher housing is not going to sort of stop that uh, battle. And so that's another thing that that we're definitely going to see as, as school starts again. Well, a lot to look forward to for all those parents and kids going back to school Wednesday. We're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much for this back to school update on what's happening in San Francisco. Jill Tucker with the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ethan. And be sure to join us next week when we'll hear what to look out for as Oakland students head back to school. And coming up next on State of the Bay, we'll celebrate the joy, ease, and benefits of getting outside here in the Bay Area. That's right after the break, so stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we want you to be a part of this next conversation. We're going to be talking about finding awe and exploring the great outdoors here in the Bay Area. And we want to hear from you. Do you have an awe-inspiring location to share? Or is there a favorite hike or walk you want to tell us about? We'd also love to take questions about how and where to hike in the Bay Area. You can give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay or email us at State of the Bay at KALW.org. Now, the Bay Area has been getting a bad rap recently. The local and national news seems focused on all that's problematic or negative about our region. But tonight on State of the Bay, we're going to highlight one of the real benefits of living here in the Bay Area. And during these summer months, when much of the country has been suffering from heat that's been so extreme that it's been dangerous just to go outdoors, we here in the Bay Area have instead been enjoying a relatively temperate summer and temperate weather. And combined with the amazing natural beauty all around us, you could argue that there's no better place in the Bay Area for a summer walk or a hike. So tonight we're highlighting how easy and beneficial it is to get outside and enjoy the many wonders that the Bay Area has to offer. To do that, I'm pleased to be joined by three guests. 
Tracy Salcedo is the author of multiple outdoor guides, including Hiking Through History in the San Francisco Bay Area and Best Easy Day Hikes with volumes for the East Bay, North Bay, and the Peninsula. So welcome to State of the Bay, Tracy. Thank you for having me. And we're also joined by Dr. Virginia Sturm, who is with the UCSF Memory and Aging Center. She is an associate professor of neurology and psychiatry and behavioral sciences and director of the Clinical Effective Neuroscience Lab. Welcome, Dr. Sturm. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And finally, we're glad to welcome Evan Chewy. Evan recently launched the website hikingbytransit.com. Welcome to you, Evan. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So we've got a great panel here for this really fun topic. Uh, I think all of us can relate to the joys of walking outside. And I I wanted to start with you, Dr. Stern, because you led a study that showed the real benefit to getting outside and taking what you dubbed awe walks. So can you tell us about the study and what you found in it? Sure. Um, in, In this study, we recruited healthy older adults from the Bay Area. They were between the ages of 60 and 90. And we had them over to uh, our UCSF Memory and Aging Center where we met with them. And everyone in the study was asked to take a weekly outdoor 15 minute walk. And we asked them to do this for eight weeks. And we asked them to go alone if they could just to minimize distractions and to try to not look at their phone, although we did um, ask them to take some pictures. And so, Uh, Half of the people in the study were randomly assigned to what we called a control walk group, where they got those instructions that I just said. And the other half were randomly assigned to what we called the awe walk group. And those participants got some additional instructions. So they were taught about the emotion of awe, and they were told that it's a positive emotion that we feel in the presence of vast things that we don't immediately understand. Um, We gave them some examples of places where they could find awe, but you can really find awe everywhere. Uh, We asked them to tap into their childlike sense of wonder and to try to look at the world with fresh eyes. We encouraged them to go to somewhere new if they could, because it's easier to find awe in new places, but they didn't have to, and they could go anywhere they wanted in in the city or in the suburbs or in the countryside. It it didn't matter. We um, We didn't make any rules about that. And so then we um, we sent them on their way and we emailed them every day for about for the eight week study. And we asked them to tell us about their emotions that they felt every single day, but also on those days when they took their walks. And so um, awe is uh, an emotion that helps us to kind of feel small, but more connected to the greater world around us. So what we were really wondering was whether by promoting awe, if we could help people to feel more connected to other people and kind of focus attention outward onto the world around us and and to the needs of others. And so we were looking to see whether the people in the AWA group um, felt what we called pro-social positive emotions. And those are things like compassion and admiration and gratitude. And um, the results of the study were really that, um, well, one, that our instructions did help people to feel awe during these walks, so that was good. Um, But also they helped people to feel uh, those pro-social positive emotions. So they felt more compassion and admiration for others. They also felt more connected um, to the world around them and in, in the presence of, of vast things. And these effects kind of um, were enduring in that they didn't just last on the days where they took the walks, but they also, um, we saw differences between the groups, even on, on the other days of the study. So over time, those who were in that all walk group were kind of showing these 
climbs in um, these pro-social positive emotions. We also looked at their photographs they, that they sent us. So they sent us um, thousands of different selfies that they took of themselves over the walk. And we use these to look for um, additional evidence uh, in their behavior to see if the awe walks were um, changing how they felt. And so most of what I just um, told you was how they described their feelings with their words. Um, but we also used a, a method where we can quantify how big someone's smile is in, in their photograph. And we saw that the people who took the awe walks over time were showing bigger smiles um, in their photos than those who were taking the control walks. Um, we had one last finding, and that has to do with um, the small self theory. And this is a theory um, that Dr. Keltner at UC Berkeley talks a lot about. But it has to do with this idea that when we feel awe, again, we feel kind of small, yet more connected to those around us. And so what we did there was we um, traced the silhouette of every person in their selfie, and we quantified the number of pixels in the silhouette versus the background of the photo. And we measured you know, the proportion of the photo that they filled with their own image versus that background. And over time, those who took the awe walks became smaller in their photographs. They filled less of their photographs with their image of the, the image of themselves and more with that background. So we did find evidence for this small self. So that was kind of the final um, uh, result that we had. Super fascinating and a, a lot, I think, to uh, interpret or unpack there uh, in terms of the results. I did want to ask, since your study involved older adults, did you find that the benefits of finding awe through walks or otherwise accrued on people of all ages or so far is it just limited to what you found with older adults? Yeah, we focused on older adults as a first pass, but I, I don't think our um, results are specific to older adults. Um, I, I think that we all can benefit um, from awe. And the reason we focused on older adults is because um, the study was trying to develop a scalable kind of intervention that could promote brain health. And that's also true for people of all ages, but positive emotions like awe help are good for the brain and they help us to recover from negative emotions. So I think that that is definitely true for all ages. And for people who don't have access to the outdoors, live in a you know, dense urban environment, what kinds of activities would you recommend that they try to undertake to get some of these benefits of, of awe? Yeah, I don't think you have to go anywhere really extravagant to feel awe. That's the good news. I I mean, it's easy to feel awe at the Grand Canyon and, and spectacular places like that. But um, I think we all can feel awe on a smaller scale, even um, just walking uh, in an urban setting and appreciating, um, you know, the architecture. Or maybe there's a sculpture or a piece of art, or it can be even something simpler than that. It can be noticing um, leaves on a tree kind of moving in the wind or the different colors on a petal in a flower, you know, that's right near where you live, it, it's really just kind of focusing attention outward on the on the things in the world around us that maybe we overlook when we're kind of thinking inward and ruminating about our, our days and our problems. And we just kind of miss the those little moments. And it's very small things that kind of add up, I think, over time. And Dr. Sturm, I understand one of your colleagues at the University of Arizona has expanded on your work with something called the Awe Collective. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. Jenny Gubner is an ethnomusicologist at the University of Arizona. And um, she was a part of our Global Brain Health Institute. So I met her here at UCSF when she was learning about the brain as a, as a fellow. And um, she's kind of taken this work in new directions as a creative artist that she is. And they um, do different awe walks in groups, but they also um, have themes to their awe walks. So they'll do things like, they'll have a color awe, awe walk 
where everyone will look for the color purple or the color orange, and then they'll take photographs and kind of document this in, in collages. They have other ones that look for light and shadow or textures and, and things like that. And so, um, and then they also do artwork based on the, the pictures and the um, things that they've seen in their all walks and discuss it in a social setting to kind of even um, elaborate on the experiences even more. And she has a webpage um, called awe.arizona.edu where they're trying to upload, have ask people to upload photographs around the world, wherever you experience awe, you upload your photo and you tag where it was that you saw the, um, the awe-inducing uh, stimulus. And then you, we all can look at this map for awe around the world. And it's, it's a pretty lovely um, uh, adventure. Well, we've got a link to that website on our State of the Bay page on KALW.org. So listeners can go there if they want to click on it. And Tracy Salcedo, let me bring you into this discussion. You've experienced and written about hikes all over the Bay Area. We just heard from Dr. Sturm about the benefits to getting outside and experiencing awe. So can you tell us about a few of your favorite awe-inspiring hikes? You know, Maybe one from uh, the kind of key regions of the Bay Area, East, North, and San Francisco and Peninsula. Yes, sounds good. Um, and I really appreciate what she had to say, what Dr. Sturm had to say, because I feel very lucky. I get to experience awe all the time and I haven't thought about it that way, but um, it's kind of nice to know that my brain is a little bit healthier for having done that. Um, so fortunately, the Bay Area is rich in parks and rich in opportunities to see see amazing things. In San Francisco proper, like, you know, right there in San Francisco, we have the Presidio National Park. And the Land's End Trail, which takes you from um, basically Sutro Baz and the Cliff House, um, Seal Rock, and will lead you around um, the edge of the land, uh, looking across the Golden Gate Strait, looking at the Golden Gate Bridge. You can even follow it all the way down to the Golden Gate Bridge, underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, connect it with Chrissy Field. Um and there's so much to see there. It's amazing. In the South Bay area, um, one of my favorite hikes is in Yuvis Canyons Park, which is um, outside of Santa Clara. And it has little waterfalls in it. We are um, enchanted by big waterfalls, but there's a little waterfall hike in this park that's just charming and um, opens your eyes to what small waterfalls can be in beautiful canyons. Um, another very interesting park down there is Almaden Quicksilver County Park, which um, delves into um, mining history. Um, they used to mine mercury there, which was called Quicksilver. And so there are all kinds of artifacts of that, that era down in that park. In the East Bay, um, East Bay Regional Parks are a bonanza. I mean, they're just, there's so much to do in those parks. A couple of my favorites are Sibley um, Volcanic Regional Preserve, um, where you can hike around Round Top, which is an old volcano. And another one is Redwood Regional Park. I'm a huge fan of Redwoods. Um, talk about awe-inspiring. Um, and there's a lovely trail there called the Stream Trail. Um, and up here in the North Bay, which is where I'm based, um, my home parks are my favorite. I have a couple up here. One is Jack London State Historic Park. Um, you can take a walk out to Jack London's old wolf house. It's set in a redwood grove. It burned, tragically burned, but it's a beautiful ruin that you reach 
by a beautiful trail. Um, and then I'm also near Sugarloaf um, State Park, Sugarloaf Ridge State Park. And that's another place where there are great walks, including the planet walk, where you essentially walk between each planet, but the the trail is scaled so that the distances between the planets are the distances that you're hiking. And they, they have little signs there that tell you how, you know, you've gone from Earth to Mars and Mars to um <laughs> wherever you want to go all the way to Pluto. <laughs> so, um, yeah, those are all fantastic hikes. I live in the East Bay and definitely love hiking on, uh, on round top at Sibley, as you mentioned. And of course, uh, Redwood regional park and Jack London is, is fantastic as well. So I think you're hitting on some of the absolute highlights and I want to let listeners know this is state of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 K A L W San Francisco Bay area. I'm Ethan Elkind. And tonight we're discussing all walks, Hiking in the Great Outdoors. We're joined by Dr. Virginia Sturm, Tracy Salcedo, and Evan Chewy. And we want to hear from you. Are you wondering where to go for an awe-inspiring hike or walk? Or maybe you've experienced an awesome moment while out and about in the Bay Area that you'd like to share? You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at klw.org. And we do have a Listener email, uh, this is Kristen in Arinda, writes, can your guest make a recommendation for hikes in the Bay Area that are good for dogs? So, Tracy, uh, wondering if you have any dog-friendly trails to recommend for Kristen. Yeah, so um, fortunately, a lot of our um, regional parks areas, they will allow dogs on leash. Um, and that is really good news. So um, my my main recommendation is that you visit East Bay Regional Parks and so long that the website itself and they will tell you where you can take a, a dog on leash or off leash. Um, the Same with Mid Peninsula open space down on the peninsula. Santa Clara County Parks has a, the same options. Sonoma County Regional Parks and also the Marin Municipal Water District, which is um, obviously in Marin County, but a lot of their stuff is on Mount Tamalpais. And, um, you know, dogs, uh, it depends on your dog, right? You want to make sure if your dog likes water, you want to take a creek hike because you want your dog to be able to, to splash around a little bit. Um, and it, it's really important to keep your dog on a leash. Um, I like taking my dogs, um, on rail trails, which are wider trails. They tend to be flat. There tends to be shade there. Um, uh, so there are some really good ones scattered around the Bay Area. Um, you can look at the Iron Horse Trail in the East Bay. Um, the oh, It's called the Old Rail Trail. It's on Tiburon Peninsula. That's another lovely trail to take your dog on. Um, and yeah, but there's there's so many opportunities. It would I could go on and on and right. on. <laughs> well, we also we want people to get your books too. So it's good if you just give a little tease here. I think that's uh, that's a good start for folks. Uh, well, Evan Chewy, let me bring you into this conversation. We've been talking about how beneficial it is to get outside in the Bay Area, and you've created a resource that may help people find their way to some of these awe-inspiring hikes. So can you tell us about hikingbytransit.com and what gave you the idea to start it? Yeah, so hikingbytransit.com is just basically it's a map plus a list of hikes. Uh, and it's all of the trailheads you can get to anywhere in the Bay Area by train, by ferry, by bus, uh, and some of my favorites out of that. 
so I, I live uh, in the East Bay, car free, and it's always just such a beautiful area whenever I was able to get outdoors with my friends, but I was like, not quite sure where I could go without a car myself. Um, but one by one, I found some good options until I realized like, actually, uh, this area is great for getting outdoors without a car. I just needed a, a map of my, uh, to help me find that. Um, so I eventually just sat down, put something together and, uh, I've been absolutely, uh, de- delighted by how positive and how massive the feedback has been. It's clear that this is really something that like has resonated with people, especially in uh, Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco, these places where you find a lot of these people who, uh, are living car free, but also really uh, appreciate the, outdoor, the outdoors. And how many uh, hikes do you have featured on the site? Are they just in the East Bay or do you feature hikes from all over the Bay Area? Yeah, so it's all over the Bay Area. I have uh, maybe 15, 20 called out specifically that I've like really put uh, put to words, but there's lots of options everywhere outside of that as well. Um, lots of great options in the East Bay. Uh, some of my favorite are... Uh, like Arinda to Berkeley is a really good option of things that you can't quite do with a car since you'd have to do like loop back to where you started. And it doesn't like get, give you that kind of narrative of going from place to place, that kind of like hiking across the ecosystems from one to another. Um, and uh, what's another yeah, good that's one? That's a great, a great hike. You can access it from the Arinda BART station and, or the Rockridge BART station, either way, take BART back, but exactly. uh, over the, uh, the De La Viaga Trail, over the Berkeley Hills, wonderful way to see a climatic change and a really uh, urban land use change as well with wonderful views of the Bay. Yeah. And I'm wondering uh, what you would like to see change, if anything, to make it even easier to access Bay Area hikes for people who don't have a car. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think anyone who's gone hiking in the East Bay Hills has kind of had that experience of driving up to Redwood Regional Park on a busy Saturday morning and trying to like search for parking and have you park off the side of the road. And it's kind of hard to find a spot. And I really think it would be pretty fantastic if the parks district could uh, maybe implement on the busiest days uh, a fee for parking and then use that money to kind of pay for a shuttle system, uh, maybe as a pilot program, just to see um, how can we kind of help people get outdoors without necessarily the, uh, the impacts of having to drive our cars up to these places. And we have an email from Stephen in Mill Valley who writes, my daughter is in her 20s and an avid hiker. And for her birthday, I want to take her on a special hike. I'm happy to travel up to a couple of hours from our home in Mill Valley. What would you recommend? And Tracy, let me uh, give that one to you. Any recommendations for Stephen? Um, yeah, from Mill Valley. Um, and this is kind of an unusual place to go, but... Um, outside of Sacramento, outside of the Sutter Buttes, and that would be, I don't know, about a two-hour drive, you can get into a place called, um, oh, shoot, I didn't write this one down. I should have written it down. <laughs> Gray Lodge. That's the words I'm looking for. So Gray Lodge is a wildlife sanctuary that is in the shadow of the Sutter Buttes, and there are beautiful uh, walk, what I call walk and talk trails, trails where you can walk beside somebody and share the things that you're seeing um, and the bird life in that wildlife preserve will blow your mind. I mean, ducks and swans and geese and, and you get to see them all. There are blinds set up along the trail. So that is a really fun place to go. 
Um, and then if you wanted to go farther afield, I'm a huge fan of Lassen Volcanic National Park. I can't even tell you how wonderful it is up there. So, you know, if you have, if you have a little more time, head up that way. Um, it's, it's not Yosemite, but in some ways it's better because, um, to kind of get at Evan's point, um, you know, you don't want to have to wait in line to get into a park. If you, the, the whole point of being there is to get out of your car and get around. Um, so that's another, um, place that I would plug. All right. Well, if you're just joining us, this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KLW San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing hiking and finding awe in the Bay Area with Dr. Virginia Sturm, Tracy Salcedo, and Evan Chewy. If you have a question for any of our guests, we'd love to hear from you. If you have an experience hiking you'd like to share, you can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. And you can also email us at stateofthebay at KALW.org. And we have an email in from Jane who writes, I'm wondering if the scientist on your panel, it's Dr. Sturm, can tell us if there is science around any other low-cost ways to improve your health as you age in addition to the awe walks. So, Dr. Sturm, any thoughts for Jane? Sure. Um, we we often say that um, things that we do to help our brain are similar to the things we do to help our heart. So if it's good for your heart, it's good for your brain. Um, and the most common thing we recommend in general is is being active and exercising. So this topic is well suited to that in general, even if you're not focused on awe, um, moving around and, and also having um, a life full of things that you enjoy doing. So that doesn't have to mean um, doing crossword puzzles or Sudoku if you don't enjoy those, but just being cognitively engaged in the world, listening to the radio, you know, um, talking with friends, um, socializing, being connected in your community, learning new things that you find interesting. These are all the things that we recommend in addition to the, the standard things such as eating, eating well and getting a good night's rest and, um, you know, keeping stress in manageable levels. So those are all the, the general points that we um, encourage people to do to protect their brains as we age. Well, thank you to Jane for that question. Hopefully you can do some of those activities also while walking and enjoying nature, the outdoors as well. And Tracy, I wanted to ask about uh, what tips you would have for listeners who haven't really gone hiking before, new to it, but maybe interested in trying out. What what sort of starting points would you recommend in terms of how to think about getting started on hiking? Well, I think it's very important that you are very realistic about um your capabilities, right? Um, your, your physical condition. Um, there are trails in the Bay Area for everybody. It doesn't matter your level of fitness, but you have to be very aware of what that level of fitness is and, you know, be humble and go out and get tired, but make sure that you can go out and back, you know, come back to where you start. Water, bring water, lots mm-hmm. of water, drink. Um, and also snacks. Snacks are really good to have um, because when you start to get a peckish, you aren't enjoying your hike as much as you would otherwise. Um, I carry a day pack on every hike, no matter how long or how short. And in that day pack, I have water. I have a small first aid kit just in case something were to happen on the trail. I carry, um, if it's a hot day, I will carry a change that if the weather changes, Fog rolls in, right? We've got our our friend, the fog. You want to bring a light jacket, something to put on in case the weather changes. 
um, a sun hat. Just make sure you're very comfortable when you go out and then slowly grow what you're doing in terms of length and challenges. And the other thing I would advise is that you really do um, what we call beta. Just check where you're going. Check with a ranger, check with the park district, check the website to make sure that when you get there, the trail that you want to do is open um, to make sure that the trail you want to do, if it if it's been raining, it could be muddy. You don't really want to walk on a super muddy trail um, that damages the ecosystem as well as your boots. Um, so uh, it's it's really about taking good care of yourself because hikes are meant to be enjoyable. You don't have to go out all the time and, you know, get sweaty and mm-hmm. dirty and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. And Evan, wanted to see if you had anything to add to that, but also give you an opportunity to talk about a hike. It sounds like you've organized in Wildcat Regional Park for this Sunday, if you want to share more information on that with listeners. Yeah. So uh, I have organized a hike for this coming Sunday to celebrate the return of weekend bus service to the Berkeley Hills. Uh, so we'll be meeting up on uh, Sunday morning at downtown Berkeley BART, and we'll be uh, heading up into Wildcat Canyon. Um and so that's a great opportunity to like try out hiking. Uh, it's moderate fitness, uh, but it's there'll be pe- plenty of people ex- experience there. It'll be it'll be great. Um, and then also next month for Transit Month, there are more hikes planned, uh, including one out into Joaquin Miller Park uh, that we'll be doing for uh, Transit Month. So there there are some opportunities to kind of get outdoors with people who uh, know the ropes a little already and. Uh, and kind of feel safe and secure in that. Right. Well, we just got about a, a minute or so left here. So I wanted to just close by asking each of you to just share your favorite Bay Area hike or one that's on your mind now. And Dr. Sturm, I'll start with you. Um, a bunch of my favorites have already been mentioned, but I am a fan of uh, Roberts Regional Park as well. Um, the Redwoods always, always call to me. And uh, Evan, any particular hike you want to share? Yeah, um, I would say basically anything in Las Trampas Regional Park it is just such a great example of uh, our wildflowers, our uh, various different kinds of ecosystems all kind of meeting at one at one place where you got the like hot stuff from the east. Uh, and then if you go far enough west that you can kind of work your way over. Uh, it's, it's just absolutely wonderful. And Tracy, last word here for you. All right. Um, so I just took a couple of friends up into Armstrong Woods, um, state park, which is outside of Guerneville on the Russian River. And it was amazing. It was just a beautiful, lovely trail through the redwoods. Um, talk about, uh, again, I, I'm enchanted by this idea of an all walk. And that is an all walk that'll tie you in. And I wish there was, I wish there was transit that would get you there, but <laughs> unfortunately you're going to have to drive there. Uncrowded, just spectacular. We're trying to bring everyone together. And I always think of the Ewoks up in the Redwoods with the Awoks. So that seems like it goes nicely together. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but this has been a, a wonderful conversation. You've just heard from UCSF's Dr. Virginia Sturm, local hiking guidebook author, Tracy Salcedo, and founder of hikingbytransit.com, Evan Chewy. Thank you all so much for joining us on this segment. Thank you. Thank and- you. Yeah, thank you. And coming up after the break, you're going to hear my interview with local author Erin Carlson about her book on the making of the classic film A League of Their Own. We'll be right back.
Have you met local author and culture journalist Erin Carlson? Erin has written three Hollywood history books, including her latest deep dive into the making of the classic film A League of Their Own. Her new book, coming out September 5th, is titled There Is No Crying in Baseball, the inside story of the making of A League of Their Own. And Erin has called the North Beach neighborhood in San Francisco home for seven years, so we're very happy to have Erin joining us tonight. So Erin, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you for having me. So first of all, congratulations on the book. I really enjoyed it, and as a kid, loved the movie, so I was really happy to have a chance to uh, get a deep dive into the making of the movie. And I wanted to ask you first, just what inspired you to choose this film to write a book about? Well, one day I was watching cable TV. Yes, I still have cable. I'm not unplugged. And I rewatched The League of Their Own because it's always on, especially in the summer. And I just thought, this movie is so great. (laughs) I have to write about it. I write about women in Hollywood. And this movie just checked off so many boxes for me. It had an idiosyncratic female director, Penny Marshall. It had a cast of big, boisterous personnel, Tom Hanks, Madonna, Rosie O'Donnell. And the movie is beloved. It mm-hmm. continues to resonate after 30 years. And I wanted to explore why and how and really go into the making of this iconic film. It was an unusual production at the time. And it stands on its own as a genre outlier, too, in the baseball movie genre. Yeah. Well, for those who haven't seen the movie, I was wondering if you could just give a kind of a quick synopsis. And then I'd love your take on why you think it still resonates after 30 years. Yes. Um, so the film is about the origins of an obscure women's baseball league that was started during World War II because Philip K. Wrigley, a chewing gum magnet, was worried about the best players leaving the major leagues and the minors you know, during the war to go abroad. So he hedged his bet and decided to found this women's league as a way to keep baseball alive during the war. So for 11 years, <laughs> women, you know, left their homes and went on the ball field and had a chance to have a league of their own. And then in the early 50s, the league, it ended for a lot of reasons. And the league faded into obscurity. 30 years later, 40 years later, um, the women started reuniting. And word got out about this league. And a documentary was made that aired on PBS. Penny Marshall, the director, she directed big, first woman director to hit $100 million at the box office. She smelled a good story. She, and she was, was self- and she was Laverne and Shirley's star before that in the 70s. She was Laverne. Um, yeah. She was Laverne before she was Penny Marshall, the director. And she loved sports, and she really wanted to pay tribute to these women uh, that no one really knew about that were left off the history books. So she decided to make this movie. <laughs> She got Madonna on board. She got Tom Hanks. And she turned this um, movie that could be niche into a big commercial, splashy, broadly appealing, very funny and very uh, moving film that just attracted a lot of audiences and was a runaway hit in the summer of 1992. Mm -hmm. So of all the interviews that you did, all the stories you heard about, 
the behind the scenes antics and controversies? What are some of the more dramatic moments that you found out about in writing this book? Well, as you can imagine, there were lots of dramatic stories about Madonna. Uh, Madonna played all the way May Mortabito, a cheeky kind of brash streetwise version of herself. And I think she really shined in the movie. She looked so tough, so cool. But during the filming, she was a little angsty. She did a lot of sitting around in the dugout, you know, a lot of hurry up and awake. Meanwhile, she was running an empire. She was in talks to found her own record label, Maverick. And she was uh, working on her sex book, her coffee table erotica book that caused a scandal later that year. So she didn't want to sit around and, and do nothing. So one day she got up and she wrapped herself. And Penny Marshall was looking for her. Penny was furious. She's like, Madonna, where's Mo? I'm going to write her out of the script. I'll make her pregnant. <laughs> Madonna was terrified. As soon as Penny got home, she found a contrite voicemail from Madonna, you know, saying that she would never do it again. Madonna was a professional, but she wanted people to treat her like, like Madonna. Yeah. So of all the interviews that you got to do for this, what was your favorite? I loved talking to Rosie O'Donnell, who played Doris Murphy. Rose is great because she doesn't have a filter. She was honest about making the movie. And she was also um, very open about her monologue. There's a scene in the movie where she's sitting on the bus with the other peaches and she's explaining why she ended up dating her deadbeat boyfriend. And she was like, he didn't treat me like a weird girl, like I was different just because I could play. Rosie, in filming that monologue, she saw a queer subtext between the lines. And Penny made her stop filming. She's like, Rosie, don't make it a gay thing. Can you not do it like that? And Rosie was like, do it like what? So Rosie who understood her character as Penny could not at that time, uh, resisted and recited the lines the same way. And gay audiences, queer audiences, also read a subtext in that character. Even though Penny left the queer history of the original League out of the film, there was still, for queer audiences, there was still a recognition in that film. Well, it shows how the times have changed. I mean, Penny Marshall, you know, was pretty vehement that it was not a feminist movie. Madonna was critical of Penny Marshall that she didn't really focus on how the league was discontinued and the sort of injustice of that. And as you mentioned, that this the queer history of the league was also airbrushed out of it as well. So it's, your book delves into those controversies too. Oh yeah, and, and Penny was like. No, my film's not feminist. It's for everyone. The message is embrace your talent. But it's so funny because that film is deeply feminist. For one, you have a group of women playing a male-dominated pastime. And those were powerful images to see at that time. It was very rare at that time as a young girl to see women characters who were mouthy, annoying, really really funny and got some dirt in their skirt well it's a it's such an, it's an iconic movie and your book is a lot of fun to read but i wanted to move on to some questions that we ask all of our guests in our uh, have you met series so as i mentioned you've called the north beach neighborhood in san francisco 
home now for seven years. Can you share what you enjoy most about living in your neighborhood of North Beach? I mean, where do I begin? North Beach is my life, Ethan. It's, I never really leave it. (laughs) (laughs) I go to Original Joe's like three times a week. I am constantly at Victoria Pastry. I get the chocolate eclair with custard, not cream. I'm constantly at Golden Boy. It's, this could be controversial. It's the best pizza in North Beach. I'm all about the focaccia crust. It's this wonderfully um, idiosyncratic neighborhood, and there's nothing like it else in America. So what keeps you committed to, to the Bay Area? What do you love about the Bay Area that would keep you here? Um, I love, and this is going to sound, this could be eye roll to people, but I love how inclusive it is. There's such a wonderful compassion about the people who live here. And there's just the natural beauty of the place. Even Carl the Fog, I'm used to now. The fog will be rolling in and I'll be like, Carl's here. Beautiful. (laughs) I do miss thunderstorms and lightning bugs and all of those Midwestern things. But whenever I touch down in California, after some time away, I feel so lucky to be here. Absolutely. And go Warriors, go Giants. There you go. Yeah, definitely got to put a baseball plug in there given uh, given your new book. So I yeah. do want to let listeners know you can pick up Aaron's book, There Is No Crying in Baseball, starting September 5th. And you can check out her website, Aaron L. Carlson. That's E-R-I-N-L Carlson. Dot com for more information. Aaron, thank you so much for joining State of the Bay. Congrats again on the book. Thank you. All right, before we close, a little breaking news. The Atlanta grand jury investigating former President Trump just handed down a sealed indictment tonight after hearing evidence of efforts to overturn the 2020 election. You can stay tuned for NPR coverage of the indictment right here on KALW. And that's State of the Bay this week. We hope you'll join us next Monday at 6 when we'll talk about back to school in Oakland and the impact of the changes to the Pac-12 on Bay Area universities. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard, email us at stateofthebay at klw.org. Tonight's show was produced by Chris Nooney and Katie Colley. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks for listening.